In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And so God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that, that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and, and moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged creature and bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock according to its kind, and the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus the heavens and earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 26. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of this very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Well, it's a new year, and uh, a new year is a time for new beginnings, and so Chris and I thought, what better way to start than with Genesis 1 and 2, I get into the first chapters of the Bible that talk about our foundations 
in terms of who we are as people. Uh, but let me say, I know that when we come to these first couple of chapters of the Bible, they are surrounded by uh, controversy. Uh, there is uh, a significant debate that rages around these chapters for Christians. Uh, so the questions are asked about the connection between uh, creation and evolution. Uh, how old is the earth? Those sort of questions raised. Are we talking about six 24-hour days? Uh, literally speaking, they're, they're questions that Christians have debated throughout the ages. And so we hit Genesis 1 and 2, and uh, some people here, I suspect, will be wanting me to disprove evolutionary theory from Genesis chapter 1. Uh, there'll be others who'll be saying, no, no, I've got a, a strong view of God in the Bible, but I also have a respect for science, and I'd love you just to blend those seamlessly together so I can understand where I fit in this world. And then my guess is there's probably some people here who, who are not necessarily convinced about the God of the Bible. And one of the reasons will be because you can't quite see how the Bible matches what you're already convinced about in terms of uh, biological evolutionary theory. You know, we come at this from all sorts of different angles. Now, I want to suggest to you it's not wrong to ask about the interaction of the Bible and science. Right? Not wrong, but I just think when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, it's completely misplaced. Right? That is... It's not actually the question that is raised or answered when we come to God's word. And as we come to it, what we need to do is respect the integrity of what God is saying to us in his word rather than try and impose our views or our questions on his word. You understand what I'm saying? There's a sense in which we approach this with humility and sit under his word rather than challenge it from that perspective. Uh, if I was to use a slightly different analogy... Um, I've got a Toyota Camry, right? And when I'm wanting to work out how to fix my Toyota Camry when it breaks down, or uh, to be truthful, my mechanic, uh, he will consult the Toyota manual, right? That's the logical place to go. But if I was wanting to search out questions about the meaning of life, I'm not going to ask Mr. Toyota. You know, like it's a misplaced use of my Camry manual. When we come to the early chapters of Genesis, it isn't there to answer uh, modern questions about science. I'm not saying it doesn't have things to say about it, but they aren't either the questions that are being raised or answered. And yet the questions, can I say, being raised and answered are much more profound, much, much more central to actually our existence in life. They're questions about who God is. Uh, explanations about who we are, uh, an understanding of how we're meant to relate to the God who made us, insight into what the world is like. You know, the good, 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 good world that Chris is speaking of. And yet we know that there are aspects where the world is not good. How does that work? We actually don't get to that in this series. Chris will have to deal with that some other time in Genesis 3. I'll leave that problem to him. But do you understand that these early chapters actually capture understanding of our world in such a clear world? Why? Why the world is such a strange mixture? So uh, rather than force our questions on the Bible, what I want to do is turn to Genesis 1 this morning and see what the Creator God says to us so that we might listen to him. And I'm going to pray as we do that. Can I, um, can I just say 
this is a bit indirect, but I have a, uh, a bit of a croaky voice. So if it sounds like at points my voice is breaking, it's not because it is. And I'm not in any uh, worry about it, but I don't want to distract you by suddenly breaking into falsetto and you wondering what's going on, OK? Uh, so I don't know what's, going, what's happening. It's part of a Genesis 3 problem, I suspect, but uh, I'll leave, leave that to one side. So let me pray and... Uh, We'll, we'll consider this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'll help us to allow you to speak freshly to our minds and hearts about who you are so that we might understand what it means to live in a world you've created, live as people you've created, uh, live in right relationship with this world and with one another, that you'll help us to think through the eternal things that you set in place. Uh, Father, we know we can't cover it all this morning, but give us an enlarged picture of who you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by talking to you about the way in which uh, Genesis 1 is actually a profound work of literature in its own terms. Now, you may not have felt that. It may not have been your first impression, even though Chris read it so dramatically for us. Um, That is, if you were trying to write a great uh, piece of literary work for the 21st century, if that was your intention, would you start in this way, in the beginning? Right? You don't get high marks at school if you start your essays that way. And maybe as you listen to it being read, you thought, it's actually pretty repetitious. Same sort of things keep happening over and over again. In fact, possibly depending on what you like reading, you may have found it slightly boring even, or even childish. Can I suggest to you that it is... Oh, thanks, mate. That's very kind. Uh, I'll try not to kick it over. (laughs) Um, Can I suggest that that it's profound literature that we're dealing with here and that um, literary experts around the world, whether they're believers or not, regard this as extraordinary uh, writing, powerful writing, impacting writing. The literature is simple, but it's not simplistic. Uh, You would have heard as we went through it, the number seven comes up over and over and over again in different forms. Uh, In Hebrew thought, biblical thought, the number seven represents the the idea of completion or wholeness or perfection. It's identified with God. And you would have heard it. We've got seven days. Uh, In the first sentence in Hebrew, we have seven words. In the second sentence in Hebrew, we have 14 words. Seven times two. Uh, We have, and God made, seven times. It was so, seven times. It was good, seven times. The whole thing is extraordinarily structured. Uh, You would have picked up the four-stage pattern for each day. Uh, First, there's the command from God. Uh, Take day one. Let there be light. And there was light. That's the fulfilment. We have command and fulfilment. Then we have an explanation or an elaboration. Um, the light was good. Uh, there was separation of light into day and night. Uh, we have the fourth uh, component to, in that, that uh, pattern, uh, the day formula, verse 5. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Friends, this is highly structured, but the structure is not, not there for any reason except to point us to the central message of this text. That is, it's deliberately structured this way to force us to understand the content of what we're being told. What does Genesis 1 tell us about God? 
That's the question. And you know that's the issue at stake because God is the hero of this chapter. His name is mentioned, that is, his person is mentioned 35 times in this one chapter. Five times seven. Uh, that is, it, it's, he is the focus of what is going on. And what we're told is that he exists before anything and he's the subject or the, uh, the heading for everything that actually happens. Verse 1, in the beginning, God. Right? He, he, he is not created, he is there. God is there and then creation come next. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can I also say to you, just those, even though I started on the note I did, do you understand in this first couple of verses there's no time frame here? Um, We don't get that until we get into the day formula. I just dropped that in. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's God who brought the universe into existence. And it just highlights his, his extraordinary nature. Uh, I find it hard to even comprehend the vastness of the universe. It is extraordinary. And every human being struggles to do that because we have no understanding of the dimensions of it. We just can't possibly even, at this stage, explore even a percentage of it. But God made it. Vast and yet intricate. Uh, you look at a spider's web and you think how extraordinary, even if you don't like spiders, how extraordinary the web is. Or um, scientific in- endeavour that unfolds you know, some ato- subatomic particles and things like that. It- it's just, we have a God who is vast and yet uh, capable of extraordinary, intricate detail. It's not surprising that in Psalm 19, the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Friends, what we're being told here in Genesis 1 is that God isn't the product of our imaginations. We are the product of his. You know, that's the right understanding of a world where God is the architect. And everything we're told when we go through this chapter, the whole structure points to the fact that everything is created for a purpose. As you go through the chapter, God declares again and again and again that everything he makes is good. Then you get to verse 31 of the first chapter. And we're told God saw all that he'd made and it was very good. Now this is not a moral statement. This is not good as opposed to bad or degenerate. That's not what we're being told here. It's not so much even the craftsmanship that God has displayed in what he's made, but rather the fact that everything he's made fits the purpose for which he's made it. Uh, It complies with the intention of God. In Psalm 45... Uh, sorry, Isaiah 45, that reflects on the nature of creation. Uh, This is what we're told. He who created the heavens and the earth, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He didn't create it to be empty, 
but he formed it to be inhabited. God created with intention and purpose that included our part in the creation. It also um, is indicative of the fact that any attempt to do orderly scientific endeavour actually comes from the mind of God. That is, it is God who has established those principles in our world that scientists are still uncovering as they go along. Uh, God creates with that sense of purpose and intention. And then the other thing that is quite extraordinary, especially in this ancient world context, is the fact that God creates by his word. Did you notice as we read through Genesis 1, first bit of Genesis 2, there's not one scientific formula present? It's just, it just doesn't exist. And in fact, it's not the point. God creates everything from nothing and he does it by speaking. Speaking. Now, I don't know how powerful your words are. I've got, I think I've told you, I've got four grandchildren now and my words seem to have fleeting impact on their ears, yet alone their behaviours. God speaks and everything that exists comes into being. Isn't that extraordinary authority? And in the ancient world, it was such a contrast. Uh, All the ancient religions had the gods competing with each other uh, to create, and those gods only ever created from stuff that existed. They just fashioned stuff. They were like potters. The, The clay was provided. The God of the Bible... He creates the clay and he does it by just speaking. Everything comes into existence. Such a contrast. And can I say it's such a contrast with modern thinking as well? Um, Scientific evolutionary theories, they, they reach into the past to explore the foundations of our world. And then can only get so far And so uh, science then hypothesises about big bangs. Like it's it's flimsy theoretical speculation. And this word of God, what we're being told about him, it totally cuts across any of those sorts of understandings, both ancient and modern. The other thing about it is, Do you understand when you read this chapter and the order, the sequencing, the regularity, the repetition, it's all there. So we're left in no doubt at all that there is nothing that is random or accidental or left to chance. Nothing at all. God speaks. What he says happens, both in respect to the vastness of the universe and the detailed intricacies of a newborn's fingernail. God is the architect. And all of creation depends upon him. Uh, Sometimes I think it's a temptation for uh, people, even people who are believers, to operate as if the world is um, deistic. And what I mean by that is that God... um, Creates. there's a belief about that, 
but creates sort of a self-contained, self-perpetuating sort of world, and then just sort of sends it off like a marble into space and watches from a distance. Yeah, it's the idea of the, uh, the God who stands back and just observes. But when you read what's going on here in Genesis 1, you can't have that sort of view. God is intimately connected to all he has created and he ongoingly sustains it all. When we heard from Acts chapter 17, Paul the Apostle is speaking to the Athenians about this sort of issue, where they fit in relation to God. And did you remember hearing, he said, God gives all men life and breath and everything else. Uh, There is your next breath you will take because God allows you to take it. And whether you've got lymphoma like Sue or you're perfectly healthy now, you will not live for a minute longer or less than than, than the Lord intends, the God who made the world. He is that sort of God who sustains and upholds everything. Friends, this is the creator God of the world and the creator God of the Bible. That's who he is. In order just to uh, illustrate how profound and how different this view of God and this view of our world is, what I want to do is intersect for a few moments with alternative theories and alternative views of the way in which the world operates and how we operate in relation to this world. I want to suggest to you that these opening chapters of the Bible, they completely cut across both ancient and modern ideas of our understanding of existence. Now, we've already seen some of that in, uh, in comparison with uh, the thinking of the ancient world. Um, the ancient world... Uh, had many religions, and generally they involved, every religion involved a stack of gods all making their contribution towards the created order. Uh, The Babylonian epic called Enuma Elish, uh, it had, I think, nine deities, and the way, uh, my memory is the way the world came into existence, according to this, was the gods got into a bit of a fight together. One of the gods cut one of the other gods' heads off, Right, bit bit savage. Uh, that head rolled away and became the earth. Okay, that was the uh, the theory in this Babylonian epic. But that was fairly typical of the way in which it operated. The gods start with stuff, and uh, it's a result of chaos and haphazardness that things come into existence. Standard fear for the ancient world. In the ancient world, the planets and the stars were regarded as gods, and so they were named. Did you notice in Genesis chapter 1, the sun and the moon are not named? They're referred to as the greater light and the lesser light. Do you know, that's so deliberate. These are not competitors for God. He made them. And they just serve the purpose of lighting up the world at different points. The the contrasting worldview is just extraordinary at this point. But not only does Genesis cut across ancient worldviews, let me say it cuts across modern worldviews, modern religious views. 
there are lots of people who regard uh, religions as all being the same. They're all paths to the same God and ultimately the same sort of destination. But even a quick comparison shows that that sort of analysis is just, it is childish and overly simplistic. Like take um, Hinduism. Uh, Hinduism uh, is a religion that believes in in many gods. Um, And all these gods have their own sphere of influence. And you need to know which god influences which bit of the world so you can go to that god for the benefits that flow. You know, you want your crops to grow, find the god of the crops. You know, it's that sort of way of thinking. It has a circular view of history. Um, Genesis has a linear view. God creates. The world continues until a concluding point when God will wrap up history and enter into that sort of eternal perspective. Hinduism is much more amorphous and just circular in that way. The God of the Bible is eternal. Uh, The God of the Bible says creation is not random or chaotic. The God of the Bible says people are valuable. It's not the case in Hinduism. You see, if you ask a Hindu, what's the difference between Chris Jolliffe and a cockroach? They would say essentially nothing, except for the choices they made in a previous life. I'll leave you to judge what choices Chris made, according to their view. But do you understand? That's the worldview of Hinduism. It's just so foreign from what you read here in Genesis chapter 1. Or take Buddhism, for example, which is a fast-growing religion in Australia, although there's still only about 1.3% of people who follow it. It's very small, just fast-growing from nothing to not very much. But um, in in Buddhism, there is no God. And the the way to enlightenment is by freeing yourself or escaping from the world. You need to reject pleasure in order to soar and be enlightened. How different is that from the God of the Bible? God is good. And how is the world described at every point? Good, 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 very good. He sums it all up. I mean, you cannot, when you hold to the God of the Bible, think anything about, about nature and the way he created it is bad. We get to Genesis 3 and we discover a wrinkle, but the reality is God makes it good to be enjoyed. Pleasure is good. Sex in marriage is good. He is a good God who creates well. But when you compare with other worldviews, not just religious ones, the contrast is just as startling. Uh, I was reading through the advertiser yesterday, not, not the best newspaper in the world, uh, but reading through the advertiser, double-page spread, feature on your stars for 2019. Huh? Now, the reason they put that in the paper is because people read it. And actually, a surprising number of Australians believe it. Now, let me say, and I'm not trying to offend anyone here, but I might, but, you know, like, but isn't it stupid to trust in the planets for your future rather than the God who made them? Don't you think? See, astrology, it's a, it's a crazy worldview. Or atheism. Atheism is a growing popular view. It's the belief that there is no God. 
people like Hitchens and Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, they're guys who've made this sort of view uh, popular in recent, recent years. And basically, according to, to atheism, what we are is just random collations of atoms who are caught in the slipstream of a meaningless existence. That, that's essentially what it means. There's a hopelessness about it. One author put it like this. He said, we just are, for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. We're born, we live, we die. Uh, you get elements of that picked up in um, sort of a combination of Buddhism and atheism in the Lion King, the circularity of life, you know, the way it goes. Friends, that is so different to the perspective we're given here in Genesis 1. The God who creates gives meaning and purpose Mankind is the pinnacle of his creation. Genesis 1.27, we're made in the image of God. We'll come back to that next week, so I won't explore it today. But we are imbued with value and intentionality and purpose by God. He's the one who made us that way. Atheism is totally unlivable, I think. And agnosticism is so uncertain. Uh, But we are secure in the hands of the creator God. Or environmentalism. Um, this, this is incredibly popular in our day to day. It's a huge issue, isn't it? The issue of global warming and rising sea levels, uh, carbon gas emissions and how we res- should respond to all that. We live in a world where the population seems to be rising dramatically and people are raising questions about whether it can sustain uh, the number of people we actually have living here. So how does Genesis 1 intersect with a green view of the world? You see, for for some, uh, the world and creation is the centre of their existence. They derive meaning and purpose and value from the created world around them. Uh, They see animals as valuable as human beings, which is why some groups can talk about the murdering of whales as if they can be equated to human life with that same sort of terminology. Now let me say, for for Christians uh, who read these early chapters of Genesis, we are extremely positive about the world and caring for the world. It's good, and we're entrusted by God to keep it that way. A good world. But here we get God's view on creation. It corrects our thinking. Uh, There's no question that God is mirrored in what he has made, but he is not in creation. That is, you cannot uh, equate God and his world as the same thing. The world reflects the hand of a creator, God. You won't find God in a tree or a rock, although it's a result of his work. Second thing is this. Um, God is actually what gives creation value and purpose. It doesn't have it apart from God himself. Uh, So when we come next week to the whole question of the image of God, we'll explore that more. But but the whole thing is that um, God gives people higher value than animals. 
Let me try and illustrate it for you. Let, I want you to imagine that we're in Africa somewhere. You uh, are out in the wilderness, you know, in the jungle, and you see the last white rhinoceros in the world charging down a poverty-stricken uh, local in an overpopulated country. Right? Last white rhino, little bloke, meaningless, overpopulated country. You have a gun and you can deal with the rhino. It's the last rhino. Do you preserve the rhino or do you preserve the man? Do you understand when you read Genesis 1, you immediately know the answer to that question? This man is by far and away more meaningful in his existence, imbued with the image of God, than the last white rhinoceros. Right? Shoot the rhino, that's what you do. Or you might be able to think of some way of distracting him. But do you understand what I'm saying? Right? God has made us with meaning and purpose in that sort of way. I think probably one of the worldviews that's most prevalent, though, in our society, that, that this chapter of the Bible cuts across is the whole question of materialism and hedonism. I think this is the subtle religion of Australia. The whole question of the acquisition of stuff or experience. Now, this worldview, I think, dominates our country. So the, the questions we read in the press are always things like, how is the economy going? Uh, will the government be able to deliver ever-increasing standards of living? We plan around how to enjoy the next phase of our life, the next holiday maybe. But Genesis is clear. Uh, we don't get our meaning from what God has made. We don't look to the creation for our sense of purpose and achievement. We look to the Lord who made the creation. He determines it. Chris and I were talking earlier on saying we could actually spend about a month in Genesis 1. Uh, it is jam-packed with stuff. And I, re I realise I've just skirted across the top of it. But what I'm trying to do is to alert us to a worldview that is so profound and different. What does it mean to believe in the God who created everything? Um, sure, it'll intersect with a worldview based on an atheistic understanding of evolution. I get that, that that will happen. But you know, there are things that are far more essential. We will be in awe of the Creator God and what He has done. I remember being on a, a rooftop in Sydney bringing in New Year's a few years ago, a big tall building in the centre of the city, when a thunderstorm hit Sydney and the harbour surrounds. And I was just treated to this extraordinary light show that God put on and noise to go with it. It was just overwhelming. And we were out on the veranda exposed to the rain, but we didn't care. It was just phenomenal. We believe in the Lord who made that, the created order. But the Lord who also designs the delicacies of existence. We ought to be in order or of him. But you know, believing the creator God is so much more profound than that. Psalm 8 reads like this. 
When I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you put in place, it's a deliberate reflection on Genesis 1, the God who places all things. Then he goes on, the following verse. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Friends, we are, we are created in the image of God and imbued with a value and a purpose and an intention that God gives us. We don't create it. It's a given. And then the final thing I want to say that I think just flows directly out of this, but also the storyline of the Bible, is that this presents us with a God you can trust. Um, I, my grandson, I only have one grandson, Ollie, he is now 21 months old. He was over at our place on Friday, and he went up, uh, we got this wooden staircase going upstairs, and uh, it's got a landing in the middle. He came down to that landing, so there's 10 steps between him and the bottom. I was standing at the bottom, and he came around the landing, he saw me, he smiled, right, and then ran and launched himself off the top step, right? <laughs> He had never done that before, you know, and I'm standing there and suddenly I see him smile, run, leap. You know, I thought, football, think football, you know, like, like it was just extraordinary. Now, what struck me was his rather misplaced trust in the fact that I was going to catch him. He was just super confident that, that this was just going to be so much fun, you know, and I did catch him. Uh, although I did encourage him not to try it again. Uh, friends, Genesis 1 starts the storyline of the Bible by pointing us to a God who can be trusted. A God of immense power. But when you read this chapter, you can't help but think he's a God of beauty and grace and generosity and kindness. And as you make your way through the Bible, eventually you, you come to really the high point in that storyline where this God who creates through his word, his son, that son comes into the world to redeem people who've wandered away from his nature. This is that God, that God who loves and cares for us, who's created us with good purpose in mind. Friends, what we're being introduced to here in Genesis 1 is the God that you can trust and believe in. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a, a God of awesome power and authority, an awesome God, a God who creates with intention and purpose. Uh, Father, we thank you for the way in which you've made us uh, in your image, we'll explore that more as we look through this word. But Father, we thank you that this points us to you, the hero of the story of the Bible, the gracious, compassionate, loving, merciful God who creates for our good, our good, our good. And the God who in due course reaches out to redeem us by the one through whom the world was made. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll give us a growing trust and confidence in you, an expanding worldview 
that adopts your purposes and intentions for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.